0: This is Global Tennessee, news, analysis, and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the July 28th edition of Global Dialogue, the International Speakers Program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. This evening we welcome Admiral William Owens to our program as we seek to look beyond the 2020 disputes between Washington and Beijing to understand the road ahead. That was the plan. However, last week's closures of consulates in Houston and Chengdu and Secretary Pompeo's speech at the Nixon Library in which he challenged the wisdom of the opening engagement with China, we can't separate the moment from the future. With me to talk with Admiral Owens is John Scanapieco. John is an attorney and head of the global business team at Baker Donaldson in Nashville. He has vast experience in working in East Asia for American and international clients. John is a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council board of directors and numerous other service organizations in the city. John is also honorary consul general for the United Kingdom in Tennessee. A complete bio is on our website and in the program notes. Likewise, there's a complete bio for Admiral Owens whose distinguished military and business careers are too long for us to take on here. However, let me mention a couple of points. Born and raised in Bismarck, North Dakota, U.S. Naval Academy class of 1962, submariner, four ballistic missile submarines and three fast attack submarines, commanding officer, USS Sam Houston and USS City of Corpus Christi, 10 years in submarine duty, senior military assistant to secretaries of defense Frank Carlucci and Dick Cheney, Deputy Chief of Naval Operations, Commander of the United States Sixth Fleet from 1990 to 1992, which included Operation Desert Storm. Appointed to Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the second ranking military officer in the United States by President Bill Clinton in March 1994. Retired in 1996. CEO Nortel, CEO Science Applications, International Corporation, co-CEO, Teledesic LLC, and author. Full disclosure, in my Navy career, I was a Chief Petty Officer in submarines before becoming an intelligence officer. So we hope uh, to avoid too much of the submarine jargon or acronyms tonight. And obviously, Admiral Owen's career was a little longer than mine. Admiral, welcome and thanks for visiting the Tennessee World Affairs Council.
1: Thanks, Pat. Great to be with you.
0: Before we get to uh, your book and, and conversation about uh, China and the future, uh, your book, China, U.S. 2039, The End Game, Building Trust Over Future Decades, uh, we'd like our audience uh, to know a little bit more about your, your background. Uh, tell us a little bit of what you learned from 34 years in uniform.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was blessed to uh, go from being a a farm boy in North Dakota, never having been out of the state of North Dakota, to having an opportunity to go off to the Naval Academy uh, for the first time out of my state, and um, and and it opened a new world of experiences and people to me, people of all kinds in the Navy and the Armed Services and of course, around the world. So I was blessed to serve around the world in, in many different parts of the globe. And so I was blessed
0: to have all of that behind me, Pat. And uh, is there a better job than driving submarines?
1: <laughs> well, our wives may talk about it differently. And, you know, being underwater with 150 men for, I guess, over 2,000 days of my life you know, is some people would say is not a lot of uh, great excitement, but it's a wonderful experience to uh, have the responsibility to be together with great people. And at the time, it was the cold war to make a difference.
0: Who, who in the Navy, uh, or what experiences did you learn the most from?
1: Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, I, I
0: told you there'd be no gotcha questions. I guess there were a couple in here.
1: No, That's okay. Uh, so when I was uh, 18 in North Dakota, you have to understand that I knew nothing about anything out of North Dakota. So just as an example, as I took the train from Bismarck to Washington, D.C., because my family couldn't afford a flight, I saw my first African-American people ever in Minneapolis when the train went through the city. So that's how raw and inexperienced and um, and naive I was. And as you get to know those people of all kinds, you come to realize we're all in the same boat here. And uh, so that was a uh, a big opportunity for me to go to the Naval Academy. But but I also then uh, was part of this Admiral Rickover program. Hyman Rickover was a great American. Many of us would say he wasn't a really nice man, but he was a great American, a genius who really was behind the world of nuclear power, not only in the Navy, but in commercial nuclear reactors as well, having built shipping port up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So Rickover was brilliant and he expected a world of good people who were zero defect and he tried to make all of us as zero defect as young officers could become. By the way there's a great documentary on Admiral Rickover for those of you who like that kind of thing and I recommend it to you and your children. He was truly a unique genius uh, for America. I uh, I have come to uh, appreciate so many people along the way, but I'll just mention a few. Uh, uh, y- you know, um, this this is never a matter of just the Navy or just the military. So I'll just I'll just name a few along my pathway. I ran across uh, many people who had been deeply into fighting our wars and did so without uh, any, any second thoughts about it and were true Americans. And you take that home with you in your heart and you never forget that. Along the way, I also had a chance to meet some great men of the world, many of whom are not Americans. Uh, Rafi Kariri, who was the godfather of Lebanon, devoting much of his own time and money to the restoration of Lebanon. Um, uh, Prime Minister Rabin and King Hussein, who I came to know as the Sixth Fleet Commander and and had enormous uh, admiration for those men, and then in the navy, and,
0: and two of them who paid for it with their lives. Yeah, exactly. Hariri and Rabin.
1: Yeah, and Rabin was a humble, wonderful man. lived in a small apartment in in Tel Aviv, and he and his wife were were very special, you know. And you say to yourself, "Where are these people?" Um, I came to know a man who I still know very well, Azim Premji, who is one of the great men of the world today, an Indian who gives away billions of dollars, is one of the most humble men I've known, uh, gives away his money to the poor of India. And so Premji is uh, truly a great man, and then, and then people who were in the Navy, uh, Tom Hayward, who stood for the right things still alive out here in seattle he's 96 years old and uh, set the right standard for all of us young officers in terms of innovation what you could do with a few great ideas and what you could do with just a hell of a lot of trust in your people and how you could get uh, the most out of them by being that kind of a leader and so i could go on with this, but those are just a few random thoughts. Uh,
0: Before I I turn it over to to John uh, to to jump in here about uh, uh, our our conversation on China, tell us a little bit about your experience in the corporate world. Uh, You had some uh, 19 boards that you were uh, a part of or headed as chair. Uh, What what did you learn in the the business community uh, that uh, you might want to share with us?
1: Well, I mean, this is a long conversation, as you will well know, but corporate America is not the U.S. military. Uh, It's not a bunch of uh, great people with shoulder to shoulder to deliver for America. And fortunately, they are there, though, to deliver for their companies. And so I have sat on, I guess, 25 public boards and 20 private boards and I was the CEO of Nortel, which, which was a Fortune 100 company, and a couple of other companies as an executive. And then importantly, I lived in Hong Kong and Beijing for eight years as I headed up a private equity company in Hong Kong. I was also the vice chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, where I learned a little bit about how stocks and equities are Uh, handled around the world and gives you a lot of pause for thinking that it's not just America, there are other great places in the world, the Hong Kong exchange, for example. And so I've had a blessed life of um, more success than I should have had, and wonderful lessons and experiences along the way, Pat.
0: Terrific. John, uh, welcome to uh, the program. Thanks for co hosting tonight. And I'll uh, turn it over to you for a couple of questions. John, you might be muted.
2: Uh, Sorry, we have family uh, going on (laughs) in my background. I have four children, so there's never a quiet moment. The the joys of
0: Zoom. (laughs)
2: That's right, that's right. So I'm sorry. Uh, Admiral, I know you became involved with the uh, East-West Institute as well, and that's an NGO that works to uh, prevent conflict by promoting dialogue and back-channel diplomacy. How did you uh, become involved uh, with the Institute, and, and, and how has that shaped your thinking today?
1: Well, it's these are never short stories, John, but... Uh... When I was in Hong Kong and in Beijing, I came to believe that we should try to do something philanthropically to bring the US and China closer together. And so with two other great men who I didn't mention before to Pat, Hank Greenberg in New York City and Tung Chi Wah, the first Chinese governor of Hong Kong back in 1997, we started something called the Sonya Initiative and that we can talk more about if you'd like. But that uh, was with five American four-star retired generals in a similar group from China. And I was looking for uh, uh, ways to contribute philanthropically and I started that. And then I came to realize that it was, if we were to continue it, it was best to have an institution that was a a do tank, not just a think tank, but a do tank to make something happen. And I had run across a fellow named John Moroz, M-R-O-Z, who was the founder of East West Institute, a great example for all of us. This was a guy who just cared about this country and would do anything to facilitate the relationships of America with other countries and had a spectacular history of doing some things. Some are known, some were not. But as the head of EWI, he liked a lot what we were doing with the initiative to bring the Chinese and American generals together. And that's how I came to be associated with EWI and to sit on the board of EWI and then to continue to be associated with the Sanya initiative.
2: Yeah, and, and, and explain to me, um, by, by putting together, say, five generals from the U.S. and five generals or, or similar uh, rank in, from China, what is the purpose? Like, what do you hope to accomplish when you put that group together?
1: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, first of all, they were all retired. And so, you know, people would say, well, retired generals uh, like Owens, they're a dime a dozen, right? And and there's, there's some truth. I mean, you don't have nearly the clout that you once had, but I came to realize that, you know, we didn't talk to these guys much in the American government, not as retired or active duty. And so in China, for example, there is the, the senior military body is the Central Military Command. Five uh, members. The chair of that uh, committee is Xi Jinping, the president of China, and then there are four senior Chinese generals. So these guys have a lot of clout in, in that system, and I came to believe that we really should get to know them and talk to them on a level two dialogue where big policy decisions weren't necessary and where you didn't have to always say exactly what your government wanted you to say, you didn't have to say the talking points, you could genuinely build a relationship. And so I was stunned to find that they are a lot like us. They wanted that, they wanted to have that comradeship We would do two or three days at a time, uh, eight hours a day of discussions, and then a lot of just being together to celebrate uh, what could be with the US and China working together. And then unlike the United States, these guys of course are much more accountable to the leadership and therefore would go back to their leaders, including Xi Jinping, and tell the story to the active duty members and to the president of China. You know, and I I would hope they would say, these Americans are not bad guys. You know, they're reasonable. They can do some things. And sometimes we did some things. I won't go through all of those for you, John, but we were able, because of building trust for future decades, part of the, the theme of my book, Uh, to, to generate a trust that might be helpful to our country. I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I've turned code and become Chinese. That's not the case, but I like the Chinese, and I happen to think they're a big part of our future. And so we came to generate trust. And when we had them in the United States, we made every effort to get them together with active duty members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in some cases with the Secretary of State to just tell the American side what they had to say. And so I was able to bring them to the Senate, to the House and have meetings with members and, uh, and, and let, let people see what these guys were like in reality because they're pretty good people. And uh, you, know, you see it from that light And it puts a little different thrust on to possible partnership for our country and for the government and the active duty military. And so there were several initiatives that resulted in specific things happening between our two governments that, you know, happened. And none of us want credit. We just want to be there to be helpful. And I, and I would say that was the case with the Chinese as well. And so after doing that a couple of times a year for 10 years, you generate real trust. You like seeing each other, you like seeing their grandchildren, and they like seeing mine. And, and it was a, a lesson in humanity that I will never forget, and I've learned along the way a lot. And I think we need a lot of that in the leadership of our government.
2: Oh, what a great program. Pat, why don't we uh, turn to the book, because I think a lot of what the Admiral just talked about is in the the book. Yeah, uh, let me follow up on on, uh,
0: the the meetings that uh, you held with uh, these Chinese generals. In the context of being involved in a uh, to-do organization, uh, and you mentioned that there were some initiatives that that probably didn't get uh, public exposure. Uh, how did the, that relationship that you built over those years shape your thinking on u s Chinese relations, and what sorts of initiatives came from that dialogue?
1: Well, I lived there in in Hong kong and and was in Beijing all the time, Pat so I've had a lot of experience in Interfacing with the Chinese people, but from these generals, um, you know, there was a, a lingering um, trust that uh, allowed a chain, a, a communication link that I think was really important to them and was important to us. Um, I love our diplomatic corps. And and always when we did these in Beijing, we would have the ambassador and the attachés involved. So we brought them together. And sometimes that was the only access that they had to this level of the military in Beijing. And so there was a little bit of a service that was done that way. I think it's very important that I don't want any credit for anything we did. I mean, this was, we've had 28, I think, retired American four-star generals and admirals involved in this program. So this has been ongoing for a long time. And I think what, what we learned was that you could really make a difference if you built trust. And if you can find ways to bring that trust to the official level, Maybe because on the Chinese side, the active duty four star equivalents trusted their comrades who were retired. And on the US side, the American Joint Chiefs trusted us. And so uh, there was a a way of kind of at a level two dialogue. And I, I hope the World Affairs Council will continue to do many of the things you do that will, will bring uh, that level of trust to the government side, because many in the government have not had the years of experience or togetherness that we have had. And, and when you can uh, do it with sincerity, and when people in both countries see that these generals uh, get along pretty well together, it means everything. So there was a the senior Chinese general uh, for a couple of years was a fellow who had been out in the Longzhou military district, that's the western part of China, for many years. And I became very close to him. And so General Lee and I used to like to see each other at these Sanya events. And old Chinese men, unlike us old American men, when they're When they're great friends they like to hold hands and so you know one night after one of the events where we had some discussions and then we had dinner and then we had chinese mao thai which is pretty strong i have to warn you uh you know general lee reaches over and grabs my hand you know and i have to tell you with what we have been through together the two of us that I was quite touched. <laughs> I mean, I still, my eyes get a little wispy just thinking about this because this guy believed in America. He believed in the greatness of our country and how we could be great partners in everything from military cooperation, technology cooperation, uh, students, uh, businesses, etc. He believed that and I could see it. And the way he talked about it, uh, you could you you could change your mind about this, and so I don't want the audience to get the wrong idea here i mean i am I am not a chinese sympathizer but True. i I am a strong believer in America and our ability to have great relationships and I'm sure you'll get to this later, but one of the reasons that book is written is because if you look at twenty thirty nine America and China are in a vastly different position, and we'd better figure out how to be cooperating in a way that's really good for our country and is good for the rest of the world and for all the values we hold close to ourselves.
0: Well, I think we need to keep these conversations going and without uh, questioning anyone's uh, motives, if they have insights and perspectives that differ from uh, someone else's. I'll, I'll mention the, the recollection uh, of the hand-holding. I think it was uh, kind of a big deal in the press when King Abdullah went to Crawford, Texas to meet George uh, W. Bush and uh, grabbed his hand as they walked from the car to the house, uh, a sign of affection in the Arab world, but it didn't go over so big in Texas, I don't, I don't think. Um, uh, Admiral, you mentioned uh, the book uh, a terrific read. I highly recommend it uh, it, uh, it, it i don 't know if anybody 's going to the beach these days, but uh, it uh, take it to the beach it uh, is a quick read uh, packed full of uh, insights and and perspectives why don 't you give us uh, uh, the brief synopsis of uh, what the book 's about and, and including uh, your 12 policy recommendations, we don't need to tick through all of those, but I, I think it's uh, useful in providing uh, a background and context as well as uh, I think the, uh, the emphasis that, that you mentioned of being a to-do kind of guy and not just uh, uh, putting out, out ideas that, that might not be grounded in any, any future uh, uh, pathway ahead.
1: Well, thanks, Pat. Uh, I will be somewhat brief, but let me let me give you a brief overview here. Um, the book is very expensive. No, it's not. It's uh, inexpensive. It's that way because my hope was not to make money or to become a famous author, but to try to get it out to as many people as possible. So I think it's six bucks or something like that. Um, or if you want a copy, uh, let me know and I'll send you one. Uh, in, in any case, the the intent here was to look at the long term, to ask ourselves, what realistically is this going to be like in 20 years? And and that's dangerous business, of course, because the unknown unknowns, the black swans, et cetera, happened to us as we're finding in our country right now. But But in fact, if you have a quality group of people, and we did, we had a group of um, uh, five or six quality people who are old enough to have seen a lot of it and who met every week to talk for an hour about various uh, things we thought we had learned about the way it was going to be in 20 years. And so I have to give a lot of credit to an old friend, uh, Jim Blaker, who was with me for many years in the Navy and uh, John Neubel, who is there in Nashville, a classmate of mine, and Tom Hayward, ex-head of the Navy, who I have huge respect for, and several others who were just critical in having these weekly meetings to talk about the future. So when we stated something about the future, it wasn't just uh, uh, off the top of our head, we actually did a lot of research on these things. And so when you look at 2039, China is substantially larger than the United States in economic power, not only buying power, but in absolute gross domestic product. I believe it's almost certain that's the case. Uh, If we look at military power in 2039, we the United States have always felt that three or 4% of our GNP is a natural amount of money to put towards national defense. If the Chinese do the same, then three to 4% of a much larger GDP is going to be a much larger military. And I'd have to say, if you are the largest nation in the world, you may want to have a quality military. Uh, Remember that the Chinese have 17 borders. They've had a history. and I'm gonna sound like I'm Chinese now, but I promise I'm not. But they've had a, a history of incursions on those borders that have threatened them for hundreds of years. Uh, what the Japanese did to them, the, the Brits and the Opium Wars, I mean, it goes on and on. And so as a great nation, they want to do whatever they can to stay strong for the sake of the Chinese people. and. You know, we can argue with their, their political economic system, but in fact, the Chinese system has made more people better off in their country than any other system or any other country in the history of mankind. So I have some difficulty taking shots at their motives as they continue, frankly, to try to make more and more people better off. That's primarily in the West with new cities, but their system of government is set up to do that quite effectively. And we need to just be aware that that is one of the goals of Xi Jinping's party, whether it's him or someone else, is to keep China safe, make it strong, not allow other countries to take advantage of them as they have in the past, and to find ways to be at peace. Their military budget today is uh, probably, even if you take account of the fact that they don't fully account for it, is far less than half of ours. And it could be much larger if they choose to do that. So China in 20 years could have a larger military. uh, And having lived my life in Uh, apart, in part, in Hong Kong I've seen a lot of the Chinese technology and and Chinese technology in 20 years arguably in many areas will be better than American. Uh, You can see not only the implementation of technology but the technology itself. And so, for example, commercial nuclear power technology or the likely what's going to happen with a very large company called Comac, which is going to compete or is already competing with Airbus and Boeing, um, or quantum uh, sciences, um, or blockchain, or financial services technologies. And so I won't run through all of that, but in 20 years, China will be very strong technically. and, uh, and, and I think that if you look at the university systems, clearly most of them are not nearly what ours are, but they're getting better. Tsinghua, Baidu, and many other universities are getting stronger and stronger. And of course, a lot of those people have been educated in the United States. Uh, however, they are back in China doing what they can to build great universities themselves, and to educate many, many, many more people than we do in the United States. When I was the CEO of Nortel, I remember dealing with the CEO of Huawei. Uh, We were trying to bring our two companies together. And and I remember him saying, uh, Bill, we're always in need of more engineers and we get we have a lot of engineers in China who are graduating. And I said, Yeah, uh, ring <laughs> uh, I won't go in, into that relationship, but I said, Yeah, that's that's true. But yours are not like ours. They're not the high quality that we get out of our universities. And he said, Yeah, but we have 10 times more and I only hire from the top 10% of the engineers. So that's what we face in this world, which is, it's either going to be a cooperative competition or it's going to be another Cold War. And for me, I don't want my children engaged in the Cold War that I was involved with because America tended to say that was the Cold War, as you all know, with the Soviet Union. We made the Russians 10 feet tall in the U.S. military. We we ascribed much more capability to them than they had. We built big budgets. President Eisenhower's military industrial complex was alive and well with congressmen who wanted bases in their districts, with the defense companies who wanted big business, and with the admirals and generals. I was one of them who was always asking for more money for my service. It was the military industrial complex. It's alive today. It's alive and well on K Street in Washington as all of those factors come together and we need to have a defined enemy. Uh, I would suggest that in some instances we tend to make China that enemy. And so uh, many statements out of the US government from the Secretary of State, you mentioned uh, Pompeo's speech the other day at the Nixon uh, uh, event and, um, and uh, Secretary Esper out of defense. We frequently don't read that, but the Chinese do, and words matter, and they respond. And when they respond, they respond with a 20-year vision, they respond with resources, and they uh, set themselves up because they don't wanna go through what they've gone through in the last 100 years of domination from many others. So uh, in all of that, I think there is a, there are a lot of lessons to be learned and, and we need to be careful. We need to stay strong. We need to have a great military. We need to protect our values around the world, but we need to realize that in 2039, we will not be the big dog in the world. And we need to be the best dog in the world. And we need to find ways to cooperate otherwise we'll be driving ourselves into bankruptcy and we'll be unable to compete effectively. That's also on the diplomatic side, which I won't go into unless you want me to. So uh, in all of that, I also think is a great need for defense reform, and I'm not gonna talk to you about that, but how we buy systems, the use of commercial technology, the competition among the four services, the need for real jointness, and the need for future technologies, like some of the ones I mentioned before. Uh, Not just from space, not just from airplanes or ships, but a full range of cyber, a full range of software, a full range of all the capabilities that we need. And the Pentagon, I tell you, my friends, is simply not set up to do it. I'm not taking aim at any administration, Republican or Democrat, that's just the way it is. And there is no legislation to fix that, but it is broken. And we spend far, more mon- far too much money to get the military capability that we need than we uh, need to spend. So in all of that, there's another thing that's going on and that's the decline of the United States dollar as we go more and more into deficit. And as we see these debt-to-GDP numbers go up so high, and so I'm not going to talk much about this except to mention that I'm passionate about it. I think it is the greatest national security threat we have today because if the debt continues to go up and we don't do something about it, the nation will not have the money to put into defense because we'll be spending money on interest payments on US treasuries and that's gonna cause everything to go down. You're seeing it a little bit today with watching the the Swiss franc versus the dollar in the world as the dollar declines slightly against the Swiss franc, which is probably the most stable currency in the world. There is an effort uh, which is a constitutional amendment to the United States Constitution, uh, requires 34 states to vote for it. There's great organizations, who uh, have 28 states now to have a constitutional convention, the first ever, and that could cause an amendment to the constitution, which would be viable. It doesn't meet a balanced budget, but a responsible budget so that we can keep our strength in the currency. And that has a lot of meaning for the defense budget and our competition in the world. So I'll just leave that with that.
0: Admiral, I, uh, I'm glad to hear you mention some of these things, because that means I can invite you back for further discussions on, on those topics. But let me uh, ask uh, John Scanepiego to, uh, to ask a question, and we are lining up uh, quite a number of questions here. So, so John, uh, why don't you uh, uh, take us into a, a little deeper into China, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll start uh, weaving in some of these
2: questions as well. Sure. Well, I definitely have to have the Admiral back because just while he was talking, I'm over here scribbling more and more questions down. So we'll definitely need you back because I'd love to talk. This is something that I I I love to talk about. I share your experiences. I've only been working in China for about 20, maybe 22 years, so not, not as long. Uh, but my experiences are very similar in that the people that I have worked with and gotten to know they all talk so favorably about the United States and about the relationship between China and the U.S., and then this desire to have a strong, uh, stable relationship. So, but recognizing, though, that we are, you know, we are competitors. So, how, how in, in, in your mind, how do you see us developing this strong relationship, but also protecting our own economic and national security interests?
1: Yeah. Well, it's such a good question, John. I mean, I think we can do exactly that. I mean, I don't think this is Flash Gordon kind of stuff. But it does start with diplomacy and having agreements. uh, And and so it's that side of it. But it's also the fact that, uh, without without a doubt, China has taken secrets from our industry. Without a doubt, they have taken jobs because they're much more competitive in manufacturing. But they are, I'd have to say, a developing country that doesn't excuse them for stealing secrets. But I would also say that now China is a very different kind of country. And if we approach them with an open uh, dialogue diplomacy to say enough of this, uh, stealing of secrets, Uh, we can do something together because our two countries will set the standards for the world over the next 20 years, then we could could set an intellectual property framework that would protect America for all time. If we did that, I know the Chinese would engage in that discussion. Many uh, in politics in the United States would say, yeah, but they, they owe us for something for what they've stolen. Well, that, that I don't think is a valid argument. I think they, there have been mistakes on both sides. But now is a great time to engage them and to do something for our kids and our companies and bring our companies closer together but compete on a fair basis going forward. And so, John, I think that's exactly the right thought to have to, to make this kind of thing happen. and and to continue to welcome Chinese students to the US and look for ways that we can bring the American people closer uh, to the Chinese people. Uh, One of the recommendations in this book is that we really should think about, and I know this is impossible now, but we should think about having a people-to-people program that is unique and special, led by the number two person in China and the Vice President of the United States, and is an ongoing month to month dialogue and effort to do something about bringing students together, military together, businesses together, uh, diplomats together so that we're really talking to each other and having it something that, that really matters. I know the Chinese would love that if we get into it before it's too late. So we can be very welcoming, protect our institution and our intellectual property, uh, protect the way of life we have. Uh, I'd suggest that we may not change the way the Chinese run their country, uh, but remember we're not going out to change the governments of every country in the world. I think we've learned the lesson along the way Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, that we're not very good at nation making, and we certainly aren't gonna be very good at making uh, the Chinese governmental system the way we want it to be as much as we may believe in that. Um, Maybe we can come back to that in a second. There are some great observations from people who've spent more time in China than I about the difference of the American and the Chinese system that I think are worthwhile spending a little time on. But John, I'm totally in agreement that if we can get the right people together, we can make just a hell of a difference in the relationship. And the winners are our kids. And the losers, also, if we don't, by the way, are our kids.
2: You know, can I ask, uh, one follow-up on the, on the US dollar? One of the, my concerns from the dollar is this idea that even though it's the reserve currency held you know, predominantly in, in the world, um, that most uh, uh, global contracts are denominated in U.S. dollars, but it seems like this administration, while we talk about decoupling from China, it seems like this current administration is incentivizing the rest of the world to decouple from us. And a lot of the U.S. I'll say power or authority really comes from the fact that through our sanction programs and some other other uh, programs like that, where we can turn we can turn that spigot off. You can't access our our dollar. But we seem to be de- now incentivizing people to decouple from us. Do you see that as, as also a, a concern?
1: I Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we are doing that. And in the sense of the U.S. dollar, uh, it has a big impact. Bretton Woods, World War II, the aftermath of that, in my view, is dying. Now, Most Americans, I mean, we don't see that on national news broadcasts that the, the dollar is going away. It's not going away. I mean, it's not going to happen quickly, but it is happening out in the world. More and more goods and services, more and more oil from the Middle East is being sold in other currencies than the dollar. The Chinese are buying far few dollars now, not only because we're at odds, but also because they don't need the dollars because many uh, countries are willing to accept other currencies, Euro, the yen, even the RMB, the renminbi, the Chinese currency. And so that's happening. And right in front of our face, I don't know why it isn't news, but because I guess it's longer than three months of future, but in the not too distant future, you can see that the credibility of the dollar, the credibility of the United States to back that dollar and the reserve currency in Bretton Woods is in trouble. And God bless us. Uh, I think we've all read history books of uh, Germany in the early 1900s when the mark started to go south in the same way. And soon, inflation was 1,000% a day. And And if we think we're wealthy and you count the dollars you have in your family today, those dollars may not be worth much day after tomorrow if this happens. It's happening, and we don't talk about it, but we should, and it's hugely important. So when you talk about 20 years in the future, there's a great guy who my friend John Newble and I know, Dave Walker, who was the Comptroller General of the United States, who is putting together a book about the United States 2040. Uh, and that is the theme, John. Exactly what we're talking about what happens to the dollar, what we should be doing to protect it, and the kinds of activities we should be Well, we had a little uh,
0: interference there. Um, can you all hear well now? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Admiral, let me uh, uh, shift the uh, gears here a little bit. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in uh, in your book was that a Cold War with China would not be like the Cold War that we experienced uh, with the Soviet Union, and and you and I remember driving submarines around the North Atlantic and other places in the middle of, of all that. And, and it would certainly be, uh, be different. And I'd like to uh, segue into a question about uh, the competition uh, between the United States and China uh, in the military sphere. We have a lot of questions lined up in the queue dealing with uh, issues like the South China sea and so forth. And we have one question from Dr. Ming Wang uh, here in Nashville, and he is uh, uh born and raised in China, came to the United States, got his PhD and MD, he's now head of the Wang Vision Institute, uh, also president of the Tennessee Immigrant and Minority Business Group and the Chinese Chamber of Commerce and found co-founder of uh, um, the uh, Common Ground Network. Uh, and he asks uh, the question, uh, what can we learn from the 20th century Cold War uh, the U.S. and the USSR that could help reduce the tension now of the current 21st century Cold War, the U.S. and China, and if you could uh, weave into that the uh, the military uh, competition in places like the South China Sea, uh, the expansion of the uh, the PLA Navy in particular, uh, and uh, and and dovetail that with uh, the ideas in your book. Yeah, well, it's
1: a, it's a long question, but I, I appreciate that, ming Wei. It's, it's an interesting subject. Uh, the, uh, the Cold War that we fought was uh, something that many Americans didn't even notice. I mean, some of us were uh, up under the North Pole for a long time in our submarines or on our aircraft carrier or... Uh, in various surveillance missions uh, and America didn't notice very much what was happening. Um, The Chinese are not dumb for sure. I mean you can you can tell how entrepreneurial they are and how thoughtful they are and how quick to learn they are uh, from what's happened in the past and so you know, while we hear a lot of hype about the South China Sea, I'm glad to talk with you about the South China Sea. I tend to think it's not as important as the news makes it. I mean, you want to look at something that's important, Taiwan, that's it. US, China, the most important thing is Taiwan and the relationship between the two countries. So so uh, the, the Cold War that we fought was one, of stealth submarines and stealth bombers and stealth airplanes and figuring out how we could get into uh, threatening the Soviet Union on the battlefields of Europe, how we could get the Army and the Air Force there and that the Navy and the Marine Corps would go up and strike them from the north flank of Russia, Murmansk, Murmansk, uh, Petropavlovsk Pavlovsk in the Pacific, etc. And we spent our our lives thinking about all of that. I uh, was deeply involved in something called the revolution in military affairs, and that was something that made me not too popular among my friends in the military. Um, I believed, as, uh, as Sun Tzu taught us, that if you could see a very large battlefield and you could preclude the enemy from seeing it, then everything in the battlefield was a target. Targets were carriers and surface ships and airplanes on the ground and communications facilities. It was shock and awe. That's what we did in the second Gulf War, the shock and awe. And and there was a lot of that in the first Gulf War as well as we flew hundreds of, of sorties from American carriers into Iraq, in what was, I think, a good war, the first desert storm, to throw Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and then get out of there. So the the uh, the military was focused on ships, tanks, and airplanes, and troops. How many you had mattered. And those numbers were very important to us. And the revolution in military affairs said, no, you need a lot of of surveillance, a lot of sensors that were integrated together to see a very large battlefield the size of Iraq, for example, and to preclude the bad guy from seeing it. And if that was the case, you'd be able to eliminate everything on the battlefield that mattered. The tanks, the troops, the trucks, the communications facilities, et cetera, we could do that. And America was very good at that and is very good at that today, we understand. But we're not the only ones now. The Chinese have learned a lot and are very smart and have similar technologies to be able to do the same. And so in this book we talk about something that I think alludes to what might be the next um, uh, Cold War, which is that what you have to, you've all heard the term mutual assured destruction. That is that we can destroy you if you destroy us. We'll still have nuclear weapons left to destroy you. Well, something else has happened, and that is our ability to see that large battlefield and put weapons on critical targets and shut you off, whatever nation you are, before you know what happened. In other words, we believe Sun Tzu and the theory that if you see the battlefield, you can hit all those targets you want to. Now, think of what happens if the Chinese have that same capability and the new Mutual Assured Destruction is a leader, Xi Jinping, and a leader, Donald Trump, who have that capability to launch that strike two hours from now. And they can do it, and they know if they go first, the other is going to be immobilized. We'll shut down the internet in the other country. We'll shut down the power grid. We'll shut down all your communications facilities. And by the way, we'll sink any ships or or uh, destroy any airplanes you have on the ground. So the Chinese think that way. We think that way. That's the new world of um, what a, a preparation might be like. I'm not saying nuclear weapons are not important, but I am saying that this other world of precision warfare, the ability to put a weapon on a target, whatever target you want with a complete artificial Intelligence understanding of the battlefield is so important to America that we must do this. Defense reform is needed. The Chinese are doing it, they're getting ready. That's the kind of new Cold War we have. And so, in this book, I make a number of recommendations. I'll just give you a couple of examples that. Uh, no first use of cyber attack, some kind of an agreement, a treaty we have to verify, trust but verify, um, a a situation of uh, collaboration in quantum computing and understanding on the university side, while protecting IP, of course. this new idea of mutual assured destruction, and let's talk about that, because it's going to happen. No one is talking about that today. No one. We should be talking about that. It's happening. That's the way we think. That's the way they think. Um, and, and we should look at the world of uh, uh, the, um, the places like South China Sea, which again, I, I know the Chinese are beyond their rights there Uh, There's a long story. It's another book. Uh, But I'd be much more concerned about Taiwan than I am about the South China Sea. Let me just say that if there's a war day after tomorrow, I'm an old guy. I have no security clearances, so don't take this to heart. But all of those things in the South China Sea are targets. Remember, and America sees targets really well. And America has an ability to put thousands of precision weapons on those targets very quickly, and the Chinese know that. So, uh, you know, there is a new mutual assured destruction that's happening already in a different form. And of course, the Chinese are trying to do the same kinds of things with us with hypersonic missiles, uh, swarming drones, et cetera, et cetera. And we can write another book about all of that. But but that's, that's the new world of Cold Wars, and God help us. We don't want to get into that with the Chinese. We should find ways to preclude this from happening with other nations and take on the renegade nations of the world, which is another re- uh, recommendation of my book, like North Korea, Venezuela, Iran. We both have mutual interests in all these places, but we're Going to be very strong if we can have an accommodation. I think, having talked to them a lot, there could be an accommodation, an understanding, a solution in each of those: Venezuela, Iran, North Korea.
0: Admiral, uh, we're uh, we're running a little long here, but I uh, I sense that you're enjoying the conversation, so we're not going to cut it off. We have lots of questions in the queue. It will uh, continue if that's okay with you. <laughs> Fine. Let me let me turn to uh, to John. He's uh, he's got a question for you, and then we'll uh, tackle the uh, the question queue a little bit.
2: Well, turning to Hong Kong for just just a moment, uh, in response to uh, China imposing uh, the new security law, you know, on Hong Kong, uh, President Trump ordered an end to Hong Kong's preferential uh, trade treatment, imposed sanctions against various members of the Communist Party and other others who had some hand or having some hand in um, enforcing uh, uh, and implementing that law. But the U.S. had a significant goods uh, trade surplus with Hong Kong, there's almost 100,000 U.S. citizens or expats that are living and working Hong Kong and there are about 1,500 U.S. companies that call Hong Kong home. What impact do you think this approach will have on U.S. interests in that region uh, in, the long, in the medium term, long term?
1: Yeah. Well, it's such a good question, John. And I, I do have a number of friends and video conferences with them in Hong Kong about what is going to happen here. And, 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 and the discussion, even with them, is very different. Uh, some believe one way and others believe the other I, I am quite fond of a gentleman named Tung Chi Hua, Wa, who was the first Chinese governor of Hong Kong, who is a great fan of America uh, and a great fan of China, and tries to bring friendship between us. And so he's he lives in Hong Kong, um, and and several others like that who have a lot of influence there. And and I personally think you know, th- this is another book that needs to be written to tell the Chinese side, the Hong Kong side, of the story—not just the American side, but all of that—and it's very different. It's strangely different, you know. I mean, this—who—who who forgets that this was all about the extradition of a of a of a U.S. Uh, pardon me, of a Chinese citizen who killed his wife in Taiwan and then flew to Hong Kong and Hong Kong didn't have an extradition treaty to send him back to China. It wasn't to extradite every American or everyone who had written a book. It wasn't that, but we forgot that. And then it turned into, no, it's a democracy rally, and and it wasn't a democracy rally. Some of it was, uh, but a lot of it is rich versus poor, and they know that. And so to understand the backdrop of Hong Kong, I think is very important. And I think, John, if we were to step forward a year, let alone 20 years, China does not want Hong Kong to become in any sense another Tiananmen. They don't want it to become other than pretty much what it is, but they, as well as the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, want it to be safe for everyone. It's a very safe place, as all of you know. Uh, They want it to be safe for Hong Kong citizens They want it to be secure for businesses from the West, as well as from China. And they want it to be that financial hub with that great stock market, the the Hang Seng, that is there in Hong Kong. And China doesn't want to disrupt that. So I predict in a year, there will not be that many intrusions into the 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 rights uh, that were given to the Hong Kong people in the turnover in 1997. And of course, Hong Kong has never been under a democratic rule, not under the Brits at all, never promised by the Chinese, uh, and they have a lot of democracy and freedom of the press. I personally like the South China Morning Post a lot. You can get the app. It's great news about America. They're going to start
0: charging for it.
1: <laughs> it's free. That's right. So Hong Kong, I predict, is going to be a great place to live. And you can tell the stock market is pretty high there right now. The uh, real estate prices are back at exorbitant levels, as you and I know, John. And, and it's, it's a place that is needed in the China inter interface with the world for currencies, for trade, and I predict that's going to be a uh, a bellwether for the future. And so if I had enough money to buy a significant property in Hong Kong, I'd be tempted to do it today. Now, that doesn't mean that the media isn't going to find an occasional intrusion by the Chinese government, but I don't think we're going to see them in the streets. I don't think we're going to see them in the courts much and and the other side of this is that Hong Kong has never had national security rules like other countries, like Taiwan has, or like Vietnam has. They just didn't have them. They tried to pass those laws, but were never able to get them through the Legislative Council. And so in some sense, I'm not excusing the Chinese, but in some sense, they needed security uh, for Hong Kong against intrusions that were truly threatening the people, the citizens of Hong Kong. I I don't, I'm not a sympathizer, uh, but I understand that. And for a secure, safe Hong Kong, for the families of Hong Kong, you know, if the Chinese play this right, I think that this is going to be a positive outcome, and it's a positive outcome for markets, for trade, etc. I'd be interested in your views too, John. I know you spent a lot of time there.
2: Actually, I love Hong Kong. And you're right, it is safe. I run in those streets every night, day, doesn't really matter. Pretty, uh, yeah, It's going to be interesting. We're hearing from a lot of the folks that we work with, something along the lines that, that, that you are, that it's being overblown, that they feel like, because this is the golden goose, right? Uh, even for, China, for mainland China, and uh, they don't want to uh, really uh, hurt that. Um, and that, what we're being told is it, it should normalize at some point, but but again, you just don't know uh, when that will occur. I'm I, I, I'm curious. Um, uh, do you see? You know, we, we've talked a little bit about. We've mentioned anyway, Secretary Pompeo's comments at the Nixon Library, pretty pretty harsh, pretty aggressive. The the current administration has taken a pretty harsh and aggressive stance to China. Um, do you think if, if, a, if uh, 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 Joe Biden gets elected, do you think we'll see a, a change, or is China just going to be that boogeyman that, will, that right now anyway seems to be the only thing that generates bi, bipartisan support, and do you think that will continue on uh, simply because we need somebody to blame um, and, and it's an easy target?
1: Well, of course, I know the answer to that specifically, right? so
2: yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, but, yeah. If you be I want to write the book next if you know that. <laughs>
1: I don't know the answer uh i I have to pray that the wise men and women around a Joe. Biden, if he were elected, would be mm-hmm. much more deeply engaged in thinking about all that, and we would we would find a way that might be more acceptable. But, uh, you know, uh, there is a now, uh, I would say because of politics on both sides, there is something going on with the Chinese that is somewhat erasable, inerasable, that, you know, the military industrial complex is alive and well, America has to stay strong, all the words we've always rallied around, except now we're playing with a big guy who's bigger than anybody else has thought. And and so the the wisdom of the people around whichever president is elected, I, I pray is going to be such that they'll realize this is a time when we need real diplomacy, real uh, cooperation to make something happen that we haven't had happen in the past. So. I, I pray that the Cabinets will not be giving speeches, whoever the Cabinets are, like Secretary Pompeo gave the other day. I think to, to make this worse um, at a time when the Chinese have every ability to start rallying against America through the Belt and Road Initiative, which we haven't talked about, or the, their, their bank system, uh, or their technology development uh, where they're going by themselves rather than with us. I think all of those things are very dangerous for our children. And, and I, uh, I pray that we have some wisdom about the long term and what's happening and what could happen with cooperation and competition between China and the U.S. where we could change the world. I'll just say one thing Graham Allison this great guy up at Harvard wrote this book many of you are familiar with called Thucydides' Trap and the theme was that if you if you uh have two great powers the number 1 and 2 that it's inevitable that they will find a way to become enemies that book has gotten a lot of attention in the in the political world and and it's happening and and it doesn't have to happen you know it just doesn't have to happen and so here is a great opportunity for these young men and women who are, uh, I love the 35 year olds who want to go and do something and make something different happen And, and, and for those of us who are blessed to have had enough experience on both sides to be with them to tell them the stories to show them the pictures of us with the people of the world and how well this could uh, come together, especially China, I think is is extremely important now.
0: Can we uh, go through, uh, briefly if we could, and I realize that uh, uh, the burden of none of these being brief topics, but just a, a couple of things that have come up in the, uh, the questions. Climate change, how can we cooperate with China? The Uyghurs, what, uh, what should the United States be doing with regard to uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province um, and North Korea? Yeah,
1: so, <laughs> well, those are all simple subjects. You uh,
0: should, should <laughs> leave, leave maybe a tease and, and we'll have you back.
1: Well, so I think on, on global climate change, it ain't gonna happen. Uh, the solutions just aren't gonna happen without the US and China cooperating. And there are huge opportunities, great things they can do and we could do together. I mean, you look at, I don't know, liquid natural gas, if you want to get out of renewables, liquid natural gas and how it could revolutionize the, the it, could, it could dramatically help to decrease carbon emissions in China. And we could sell a lot of LNG to China Where do they get LNG today? Well, they get a little bit out of the Gulf of Mexico. They get a lot out of uh, the Pacific side of Canada because there's a pipeline. We should be building a lot of LNG facilities and making liquid natural gas and shipping it to China. They'll buy billions and billions and billions of dollars worth and they'll convert those coal-fired power plants into uh, LNG plants. And it's much, much more carbon-friendly, uh, 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 they emit far less. So there's, there are a lot of things like that. And, and so that's a quick answer to that one. North Korea, I'm sorry, you want to... So, no, no.
0: Well, I was, I was going to mention, uh, I was on a, uh, a World Affairs Council delegation visit to, uh, to China a few years ago, and the theme of our visit was uh, climate change. And we went to a number of uh, industries and bureaus, and their push for electric vehicles was incredible. So b- battery technology and electric vehicles, uh, they're, they're going to be uh, killing it here soon.
1: Absolutely. I'm so with you there, Pat. I think that's exactly right. And we should be doing it together. You know, I mean, the the technologies protect our IP and all of that, but we should be doing it together. And uh, so I'm totally with you there. North Korea, uh, we won't find a solution without the Chinese being side by side with us. And I know they want to be. No one knows more about North Korea than the Chinese. If we think the North Koreans are great friends of the Chinese, that's wrong. They're very objective about it. They have some different views for the Korean Peninsula than we have. They would like to see a continuance of a North and a South Korea. They do not want to see a united Korea, nor do I think it's in our best interest, but the US government tends to think a united, free Korea might be the best thing for the future. we've said it several times. But the Chinese know where everything is in North Korea. The Chinese will suffer more if North Korea collapses than anyone else other than the the Koreans. And the Chinese are deeply engaged in trying to preclude something bad happening in North Korea. So whether it's sanctions, whether it's technology, whether it's uh, whether it's intelligence to predict what's going to happen, we need to have a partnership with the Chinese. And one time, a few months ago, I wrote a draft article that I couldn't get published that was, that, that referred to President Trump and Xi Jinping getting the Nobel prize for solving North Korea. And North Korea was now a kind of a Singapore-like place. Both countries were celebrating the goodness of all of that. I don't like Kim Jong-un, don't get me wrong, but the world is a pragmatic place and we need to do the best things for our country and for the world and so would the Chinese like to do that. So anyway, that's North Korea. What was the With
0: The uh, Uyghurs?
1: Uh, The Uyghurs. Uh, Well, you know, I, I don't support what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs, for sure. Uh, we don't have a lily white history here ourselves. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to take shots at America, but the American Indians, the 531 tribes in the United States, the Indian reservations in my home state, the Japanese in concentration camps, uh, what happens in the streets of Chicago, you know, we, we, we are not totally clean, but I don't for sure support in any way what the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs. We do have to understand where it comes from, and that is that we have never been very involved in terrorism in the stands. And what's happened in Chechnya, all the way over through Tajikistan and Kazakhstan has been very threatening to the Chinese people in the form of terrorism that they've seen. Now, are they doing the right thing there? I don't think so. But I also don't think by totally criticizing, we're finding the solution. I think the solution is for us to be there and work with them to try to get that Uyghur situation sorted out. It's much easier to just criticize and tell the story. And maybe it's even politically beneficial to us, Republicans or us Democrats. It's good to, to talk about how bad they are because that's good because that makes us feel like we're strong. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, folks, uh, having been out there, having seen what it's like, having had dinners with a lot of Uyghurs, leaders of Chinese cities who are Uyghurs, um, you know, there's a very different story, and we don't have time to go through it here, but I wish you all had the same experience in meeting some of the people, including Uyghurs, including Uyghur leaders, who have uh, a very different view than what we read in the American press, Admiral. Well, well, uh, we uh, we won't talk about that right now.
0: We've uh, exhausted our welcome, and I see the sun is going down in, the, in Seattle. There, with at least uh, ju- judging from your blinds. Uh, but let's uh, let's leave with one question about building bridges, and there there are several questions about how we can. Uh, uh, work together with the Chinese and, and Dr. Ming Wang uh, summed it up probably uh, best here for every 10,000 Chinese who can speak some level of English, one cannot find Americans who speak comparable levels of Mandarin. We need first and foremost, to learn and understand China. The Number one reason that China has done so well in selling goods to us is because they are willing to learn about us. We have to do the same about them. Uh, but the question is, uh, and and maybe this is more rhetorical than practical, but what, what sorts of things can we do now that we seem to be uh, on a slippery slope towards a more hostile relationship? What kinds of things can we do to perhaps uh, help people understand and, and try to learn more about what's what's going on in China?
1: Yeah. Well, I do think there's two things. One is the people-to-people program I mentioned before if we took that really seriously, and I would, you know, to try to genuinely bring it to a high level, like the Vice President of the United States and the Premier of China, the number two people, to put them in charge and have them become friends themselves, back and forth, lots of meetings, on people to people, military to military, economists, business people, uh, to, to get to know each other and spend time. America does need to get out of our box and study Chinese and other things. And I'm proud of those kids who are, are doing it. And there, there is just a world of great goodness when we start to get to know them and see the attitudes. And so on. I'm just over the top in agreement with you that that's a huge element of uh, importance for our children. By the way, uh, we had in this group I mentioned to you that helped to write this book, an 18-year-old senior from uh, one of the high schools here in Seattle, Sebastian, Sebastian Alfonso, president of his class, great athlete, great guys at Stanford now. And we had him sit on on this, and then when it was when we had gotten through our deliberations of a year, of one week, of an hour a week, I asked him to write his thoughts. It's in that book uh, he talks about. He would I wouldn't say he sounds like me, maybe I sound like him, but he, he gets it. You know, he understands. And, and by the way, he went to remote China and lived in a remote village with a family that was very poor for a month one summer. And he called them mom and dad. And had this sweet relationship with these people who shared their rice or their corn with him, and he worked on an outdoor toilet for them. And that's what we need. We need to really understand each other like Sebastian does.
0: John, last nice comment? Uh,
2: yes, Admiral, I want to first of all, I want to thank you very much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I, I believe your, your, the information you've provided is, sh- is so beneficial. Uh, because I think that we are at an inflection point right now, and we can go one or two ways, and I think one works out really well and one maybe not so well. So thank you very much. I, I, I think your book is coming at a perfect time, and I hope that you'll join us again uh, to 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 really further this conversation along because I think the information you have and the suggestions and recommendations that you have are, are, are really beneficial that I think a lot of us in, in the business community or just as private citizens can take when we engage China on our own. And, yeah. and I think we should all do that. So thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, John and Pat. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Admiral, Admiral thank you so much for being with us. Thanks to John Newbel for uh, making the connection. I know Seattle has a, 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 a absolutely terrific World Affairs Council uh, and we appreciate you looking east to uh, to Tennessee to join us uh, here uh, and, and I echo john 's uh, thoughts that uh, we look forward to having you back to to talk some more. Uh, that's it for us. Let me uh, remind everyone that the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a membership organization. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, organization. We hope that you'll consider becoming members or making a gift to the World Affairs Council so we can do these things that we do and bring you uh, spectacular programs like the one we had tonight. Uh, that's it uh, on behalf of the World Affairs Council. Uh, thank you. And Admiral, again, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone go home safely. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.